The Buffalo History Museum podcast is made possible with support by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Happy Monday, everyone. I'm Anthony Greco, the director of exhibits at the Buffalo History Museum. Growing up, my father was a pilot. He owned a small four-seater airplane and hangar at Niagara Falls International Airport. And that's where he would spend much of his free time working on the plane, which he had nicknamed Ralph. On weekends, he would often bring my brother and I out there with him. We'd run around finding ways to pass the time. And every now and then, the day would end by my father taking us up in the plane for a short ride. Though I never had the urge to become a pilot as he did, I grew up around the aviation hobby. I had the opportunity to meet many of the men and women who had that love of flying. The men and women who had the dedication and drive to dare to do something that many don't. Pilots have a unique personality. They're tinkerers as much as artists, daredevils as much as perfectionists. And the same can be said for one of aviation's earliest pioneers, Glenn Curtis. I first read a book on Curtis a few years ago when I was researching Buffalo's role during World War I, and I was immediately intrigued. He seemed so much like one of the pilots that I had met when I was younger. He was blue collar, hardworking, and very inquisitive. Born in Hammondsport, New York in 1878, Curtis got his start working with bicycles before he moved on to motorcycles, engines, and then airplanes. He even owned a bicycle shop, as did his main competitors, two folks you've probably heard of, Orville and Wilbur Wright. In the early 20th century, Curtis and the Wright brothers were entangled in lawsuits over airplane design and copyrights. The main issue was over something called wing warping, a feature which allowed planes to turn while in flight. This lawsuit brought aviation design to a screeching halt in the U.S., while the European manufacturers made significant leaps forward. Curtis brought his aviation operations to Buffalo in 1915, where he began to manufacture flying boats, airplanes with pontoons which could take off and land in the water. Within the next few years, Curtis would build a number of factories in the city, mainly to supply the Allied forces in the escalating war overseas. One of these factories at 2050 Elmwood Avenue, next to Home Depot's North Buffalo location, was torn down just last year. It had been vacant for a very long time after spending years as an Amwild department store. In 1929, Curtis and the company of his former competitors, the Wright brothers, merged. The new Curtis Wright Corporation would become a major manufacturer and employer in Western New York. During the height of World War II, Curtis Wright employed as many as 40,000 people, many of whom being women. After the war ended in 1945, the demand for airplane production plummeted. Curtis Wright, needing fewer workers and much less space, relocated to Columbus, Ohio. 
to discuss Curtis, I was able to reach out to Rick Leisenring. Rick is the curator at the Glenn Curtis Museum in Hammondsport and is incredibly knowledgeable about Curtis and many other topics. He's truly a fascinating man to speak with. If you ever find yourself in Hammondsport, please stop by the Glenn Curtis Museum, speak with Rick if he's available. Uh, it's an incredible story and he's an incredibly informative person. So without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome, Rick, and thank you for being on with us today. Just a bit of background about me. My father was a pilot who flew out of Niagara Falls, just about 20 miles north of Buffalo. And growing up, I remember he would tell me stories about Curtis Field and that Curtis Wright was a huge factory that used to employ lots of people in Western New York. So I knew the name Curtis, but it wasn't until I started reading about World War I and Buffalo's role in the war that I had the opportunity to read a book on him. I became really fascinated with them. I've been meaning to get out to your museum, and I definitely will one of these days, but I'm very happy to have you on today. So if we could just start by talking a little bit about who Curtis was, I think he's one of those figures that maybe some people have heard of him, probably lots more haven't. So for those people who aren't familiar with him, could you just give us a little bit of information about who exactly he was? Sure. Uh, Glenn Hammond Curtis is a local boy. He was born here in Hammondsport, New York, and he's actually named after Hammondsport. Uh, Glenn coming from the Glen to the west of the village and Hammond coming from Hammondsport. Uh, his mother just fell in love. She was a nature lover and she fell in love with the Glen and the, and the, the local area. So she decided to name her first child after the local area. Hence his name. Uh, he uh, was a grew up in a um, as a humble young man uh, in a family that uh, really, really uh, was not destitute, but of uh, have a, having a poor background. Uh, Glenn, at the age of ten, started helping to support the family, and by the time he was fourteen. When he graduated uh, eighth grade, uh, he quit school and went on to become one of the major breadwinners for the family. The reason for that was both his father and grandfather had passed away uh, when he was about five years old, leaving him the only male in the family. And uh, by the time he was 14, he was helping to support his grandmother, his mother, and uh, his younger sister. So the museum is located in Hammondsport, which, of course, is in the Finger Lakes region. Could you just tell us uh, a little bit about what the area's history is and what it's known for? Uh, Hammondsport uh, is right here in the heart of the Finger Lakes at the uh, the, the southern end of Cuca Lake, uh, one of the smaller of the, the, the lakes. Uh, it is well known for its grape and wine industry, which got started in the late 1850s, early 1860s. Um, and that was the major, uh, production, uh, industry, as it were, agricultural industry for the area. Uh, the, the lake systems at that period of time were all connected together with, um, canals. So there was a big steamboat era on, uh, Cuca Lake here too. So, uh, but, uh, the wine industry was probably what we're most famous for, uh, right up until the time Curtis got started. So I apologize. I had cut you off a little bit earlier. Curtis was about 14. Could you go back and talk about, um, you know, him when he was younger and some of the jobs he was getting into that would ultimately set him on the path uh, toward aviation? Well, it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, Curtis was self-driven. 
um, when he was young, his sister had lost her hearing uh, to a major illness, and his mother took her to Rochester uh, in the uh, mid-1890s uh, to attend the uh, uh, school for the deaf up in Rochester. When Glenn finished the eighth grade down here while his mother and sister were living up in Rochester and he was staying down here with his, his grandmother, uh, he would go to Rochester and try to help support the family up there too. So he was, tran- he was transporting himself between Rochester and Hammondsport, basically trying to watch after two different families, as it were. Uh, when he was in Rochester, he got jobs first with the Eastman Dry Plate Company, which is now Kodak, um, stenciling packaging. And that's when he learned uh, he had a love for photography and he started studying photography. Um, he was into everything, believe it or not. Uh, after he left uh, Eastman Dry Plate Company, he got a job uh, as a delivery boy, messenger uh, boy for uh, Western Union Telegraph Company. Uh, and that's when he discovered that he loved racing bicycles. Now, in 1896, he moved back down here permanently to Hammondsport from Rochester and joined um, a local racing team. Now, in the 1890s, bicycle racing and bicycles were now all of the major rage with people. It was the first um, transportation mode that women could use on their own. They didn't have to depend on a man. Women could ride bicycles. Uh, people were racing bicycles. So it was, it was quite a phenomenon at that point in time in the 1890s. And he became a champion bicycle racer for a local team known as the Hammonds Court Boys. Um, at that time, he met a young lady uh, by the name of uh, Lena Neff uh, and fell in love and got married at the age of 20 in 1898. Uh, and that's when he realized that he really now he had a larger family to support. Now he had a wife to the family. Uh, so he decided that since he loved bicycles, um, he would open up his own bicycle shop here in Hammondsport. And that became so popular that he immediately the following year opened up a bicycle shop in uh, Bath, New York. So he had he was now quite the you know entrepreneur. Uh, amongst that, he was still doing photography. He was still a traveling photographer doing, you know, photograph, uh, photographs for family reunions, weddings, uh, out in the country, things like that. So you mentioned that, um, Curtis is involved in bicycles. And of course I'm thinking about, you know, Orville and Wilbur Wright and their bicycle shop in Dayton, Ohio. Do you think that that is just a pure coincidence or do you think that it was something just naturally, you know, intrinsically in them and it was a natural progression towards something? I believe that it's it's a natural path. I mean, it is it's a rage. If you have uh if you have an inquisitive mind and you got to remember at the turn of the century in the 1880s, 1890s, early 1900s, so much was happening in this country. We had a second wave of an industrial revolution like we did in the 1860s, then all of a sudden around the turn of the century we you know, we had the internal combustion engine being introduced, uh bicycles uh, you know, that the bicycle that we're familiar with today at that time was known as a safety bicycle because it had two wheels of equal size. So therefore you didn't get hurt as bad as you would on the larger, what they are known as penny farthing bicycles, those big tall wheel bicycles, um, that people tended to fall off and get hurt on a lot. But, uh, it, um, 
So there was so much going on at that period of time. If you have an inquisitive mind like the Wright brothers and Curtis and many others, you want to get involved in different things. Um, you, you want to jump in and ride the wave of something new. Uh, and that's what the Wright brothers did. They started out with a print shop and then moved into bicycles when the bicycle rage started. And Curtis did the same thing. Curtis actually uh, started doing things like selling rabbits and selling off. His father was originally a harness maker, and uh, Curtis pulled out all of the old stock that was still stored in a barn and started his own harness making shop uh, for a little while, but then jumped right into bicycles. Uh, and he ran the, the, the two concurrently with each other. So he was into a lot of different things at the same time. But then motorcycles showed up at the same time. We have so many different things happening. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden people, and we have the introduction of the internal combustion engine and bicycles. And, of course, a natural conclusion is, gee, let's put the two together. And Curtis, like many others, just decided to do the same thing. So in 1900, Curtis, with the help of uh, his wife's uncle, Frank Neff, developed his first motorcycle um, and uh, with a much uh, improvements and work in developing his own engine because he wasn't happy with the engines that were available. By 1902, he had dropped bicycles altogether and was now into major mo- motorcycle production and selling them in, in um, his bicycle shops. So this opens up a whole new um, area of his life. I remember reading that he, uh, on his motorcycles, would enter races and things. Could you speak to uh, a little bit of that aspect of his life? Oh, yes. Uh, when he was uh, originally as a bicycle uh, a local champion, he set a lot of bike, won a lot of bicycle races. He set a couple of speed records. Um, he was even known for actually riding a bicycle from Hammondsport to Rochester and back. And you got to remember, at that point in time, we didn't have paved road systems like we have today. So a lot of them were on country dirt roads and that. So that's quite a feat. He was quite the athlete. Um, but when he got into motorcycles, uh, he, he had by what he had developed as a bicycle racer was the, the will and the, the, uh, the drive to win, always be set a record, always be the first. Uh, and he was never happy if he took second or third place. He just had to, had to have that first place. Um, is an interesting thing is as soon as he developed his, uh, his motorcycle, uh, to the point where he was happy with it, uh, he immediately, um, in 1902, took it to uh, a, uh, now remind you, this was a one-cylinder engine. So he took this one-cylinder um, motorcycle that he developed, and he named it the Hercules. He took it to Brooklyn and took a third-place medal uh, for one race and a second-place trophy for another. And he was not happy at all when he got home because <laughs> uh, he wanted to set, uh, you know, uh, be first place winner. And subsequently, because of that, that drive, uh, it caused him to develop a more powerful engine. And out of it, he developed the first V-twin or two-cylinder uh, engine of its kind in America. Uh, and he immediately, uh, the following year in 1903, Took it to um, New York again, went right back to New York uh, City, won the uh, Riverdale Hill climb there, and then drove out to Yonkers and took first place medals for both the one mile and five mile race 
there at that uh, race on the same weekend. Uh, and in his words, he vindicated himself for his poor, his poor placing the year before. Um, and that really put him in the forefront uh, publicly uh, for his motorcycles. Okay, so now we're in the early 20th century and Curtis is building engines. And of course, at this time, we've got the Wright brothers and Kitty Hawk in their first flight. And you've also got all over the world in Canada and Nova Scotia, you've got these groups of inventors who are working on um, how to make better flying machines, how to um, create better engines and, you know, wing warping and things like that. How did the engines that Curtis was creating, how did he pivot those uh, into the aviation industry? Well, here's the interesting thing about that is that as he's racing and he's developing his engines in 1903, uh, a new wave was taking place at the same time. The aeronautic craze was happening. And at that point in time, it wasn't airplanes as we know it today. It, at that, it was dirigibles or gas balloons. And many of these uh, gas balloons, um, known as dir- dirigibles, we're looking for a way to power them because a lot of um, um, fairs and magazines such as the Scientific American magazine and that were offering prizes for the first person who could fly a motorized dirigible. And because Curtis was now winning a lot of motorcycle races uh, and offering the engines themselves uh, as, as a sale item instead of just the whole motorcycle, which was unprecedented at the time. A lot of the early motorcycle manufacturers were just selling the machine. They weren't selling the engine separately, but Curtis decided to sell the engine separately. They were buying his engines and trying them out on the dirigibles. And uh, as a result, they immediately started flocking to Hammondsport asking Curtis for help. So he redesigned his one and two cylinder engines for their needs. And, um, Thomas Scott Baldwin and several other uh, dirigible uh, flyers, uh, Thomas Benbow is a, is a good example, immediately asked Curtis for their help. They bought his engines and they tried them out on the dirigibles. Now, they were, they were competing for a, a large uh, money pocket or prize at the St. Louis uh, Exposition in 1904, uh, the Lewis and Clark Exposition in St. Louis. And as a result, Curtis developed his first aeronautical engines for that group of people. And at, at that point, he's, he's ahead of everybody else. Not, now, not only is he making motorcycles, motorcycle engines, but now he's making aeronautical engines and offering, offering them to that, that group of people. And as a result of that, here's an interesting thing is that for uh, Thomas Scott Baldwin used V-twin on his dirigible. And uh, Thomas Benbow from Frankfurt, New York, uh, used the first V4 that Curtis developed for him. The first V4 in the, in the United States was developed by Curtis for a dirigible. And both of those balloons uh, competed against each other at the St. Louis Exposition, which is ironic because only three were able to qualify and two of them were using Curtis engines. So that put him out in the forefront. Uh, again, now first, not only with, uh, motorcycles now with, uh, air in the aeronautic, uh, a group, uh, we're now taking notice of him too. 
So as Curtis is uh, getting involved with these different groups, one of the people that I remember reading that he became involved with was Alexander Graham Bell working uh, with him up in Nova Scotia. Prior to this, I had zero idea that uh, Graham was involved in aviation at all. When I think of him, I think gramophone, I think telephone. Could you speak to a little bit about exactly what they were working on up there? Yes. Um, now, as a result of all of the uh, the dirigible flyers, these aeronaut uh, coming to Curtis, uh, there was a young uh, man by the name of Charles Oliver Jones who came to Curtis and asked Curtis to help him develop a, a very powerful engine uh, for his uh, dirigible. And as a result, Curtis invented and developed the first V8 engine. Now, Curtis, before he would let it be used on, and we're going to go back to motorcycles here just for a little bit. Uh, before he would allow it to be used on a dirigible, he put it on a motorcycle frame, uh, took it to Ormond Beach, Florida for the speed trials in January of 1907. And as a result, he set a world land speed record of 136.4 miles an hour on that motorcycle, becoming the, the fastest man on earth. That was his official title. Now that, that race that he did in January brought him to the attention of Alexander Graham Bell. Alexander Graham Bell was experimenting with heavier-than-air uh, manned flight, uh, and uh, he decided to create an organization now known as the Aeronautic Experiment uh, Association. He invited Curtis in 1907 to join that group as the engine man, which Curtis reluctantly did at first but then he got bit by the the uh you know the flying bug himself so uh as a result he worked with uh bell bell brought the group down from bedeck nova scotia to hammondsport and they worked here in uh hammondsport to be closer to curtis because he had a manufacturing plant and he could build the prototype aircraft that they were they were exper experimenting with and it first started out with the uh Red Wing, then the uh, White Wing, and then Curtis was uh, allowed to design and build the third uh, aircraft, uh, experimental aircraft, and he called it the June Bug. Now, um, at that point in time, the Wright brothers were aware of the the uh, association and their experimentations, but didn't think anything of it. They didn't think that they would um, come to any, any good conclusions. Uh, better than what they had already done back in 1904 at Kitty Hawk. Um, so to get the Wright brothers out into the public and fly their airplane, the Scientific American magazine offered a large cash reward and a silver trophy known as the Scientific American trophy uh, to the Wright brothers if they would fly their aircraft uh, for the public, uh, and which the Wright brothers quickly said no. They they wanted to work on their patents before they let any any of the public see what they were doing. Uh, i got to remember that Kitty Hawk, uh, four and a half years before, was uh, in, in secrecy. Uh, it wasn't a public flight. So as a in order to get the Wright brothers to do it, Scientific American Magazine said, well, we'll offer it to the public uh, for the first person who will fly one kilometer under their own power, take off and land. 
uh, we'll give, you know, we'll reward the trophy and the, the cash prize. And the Wright brothers said, we're confident that no one could do it. So they said, go right ahead and do it. Well, Curtis asked Bell if, if that was a, you know, a possibility. And Bell said, go ahead and try for it. So Curtis took the June bug and after several success, successful flight, notified the Scientific American magazine and the Aeronautic Association and the public that if they came down to Hammondsport on July 4th, 1908, they would see the first publicly announced officially witnessed air flight in the United States. Um, there were several thousand people here on that day to watch Curtis, and Curtis actually did it. He took off under his own power, flew more than one kilometer, and landed under his own power. And that's when he set the record of the first publicly announced, officially witnessed flight in the United States. And pardon the pun, but that propelled Curtis into aviation. And by that time, he started phasing out his motorcycle business and developing more time to aviation. Since we're talking about the Wright brothers, what can you tell me about Orville and Wilbur and their relationship with Glenn Curtis? I know that the Wright brothers, um, you know, are, are sitting on their patents and developing their own technologies while Curtis is in Hammondsport trying to perfect his engines. So uh, could you speak to a little bit about, uh, you know, what their relationship was with each other professionally? Well, uh, up until Curtis was working with uh, Bell, he really didn't have too much of an interest in the manned flight aspect. He's working with Baldwin and other uh, aeronauts on their dirigibles. And believe it or not, he set the first uh, aeronautic, one of his first aeronautic uh, records in 1906 by flying a dirigible for over four hours, setting an endurance record. And he didn't mean to do that, but he was trying to demonstrate his engines to the army of how uh, how durable and dependable they were by keeping this dirigible up in the air for that long. Um, but an, up until then, he really, what he did is when he heard that the Wright brothers had done Kitty Hawk, he actually went uh, wrote a letter to them and offered them one of his engines free of charge if they, uh, if they like to experiment with. Well, they turned him down only because they felt that they already had an engine design uh, that was sufficient for their needs. Uh, so it was, it was very, they, they knew of each other. Uh, they had briefly communicated with each other, but there was no interest in competition or apparently working together because the Wright brothers had turned them down. So Curtis didn't approach them anymore. Um, and as I mentioned before, it wasn't until they started working with, he started working with Bell in uh, late 1907, early 1908, that he actually took an interest in aviation itself. Uh, at that point in time, as I mentioned before, the Wrights didn't think that the association was going to amount to much, so they just basically uh, ignored them and left it alone. After reading the book, one of the names that stuck with me was that of Tom Selfridge, who, as you know, was the first victim, the first fatality of a plane crash. Could you tell a little bit about Selfridge, uh, his relationship with Glenn Curtis and his group, and then uh, the relationship with the Wright brothers? Well, that's that's an interesting aspect, because uh, which kind of connected the Wright brothers to Curtis and the, and the association. Thomas Selfridge... Uh, was uh, a professional soldier, and he was a West Point graduate. Uh, he was assigned to Bell, actually, 
by the army to to work with Bell to see what he was doing and to see if aviation would have any place with the military. Um, so that's how Selfridge started working with, with Bell. Selfridge was one of the four men that worked under Bell, uh, along with, uh, as, as, uh, including Curtis. And Thomas Selfridge at that point, um, came and went with the association because of his need, because he was still a professional, you know, a regular army officer. Uh, and at a certain point, the Wright brothers felt that they needed to get into the public eye again. And they started uh, working with the army on a contract to supply the army with an airplane. And uh, Thomas actually, uh, because he was the only army officer who had any experience with uh, aviation, was assigned to uh, meet the Wright uh, brothers, Orville, uh, at Fort Myers, Virginia, and take a test ride in a Wright flyer uh, as a result of the, you know, the, try, the Wright brothers trying to secure a contract with the Army. Uh, the Wright brothers were not happy about that to some extent because they knew Selfridge was working with Bell and they felt that he was actually spying on them. But as a result, they wanted the, the contract Selfridge had to, uh, you know, ride with Orville Wright. Sadly, it, during the demonstrations, they, they had a propeller problem it, uh, and uh, the Wright flyer crashed, killing Thomas Selfridge. Uh, the first uh, aircraft fatality in the United States, which was sad because at one point there was a little uh, animosity uh, amongst the uh, the members of the AEA uh, and, and Curtis. They always wondered why, because the Wright brothers were, uh, you know, very suspicious of Selfridge. You know, he had to end up dying at the hands of a Wright. Uh, there was a little bit of a little bit of a controversy there at first, but uh, Glenn, being the person he was, um, having a very religious background, you know, didn't believe in the conspiracy theories and just went ahead and and moved forward. Uh, he was brokenhearted because he knew Selfridge and liked Thomas Selfridge, but um, there was nothing he could do about it, and he just continued forward. Okay, so now by this point, uh, Glenn Curtis has the June bug. He has some success. Um, At what point does he come to Buffalo? Uh, What airplane models uh, is he producing here, manufacturing here? How many factories does he have? And ultimately, why does he choose to come to Buffalo? Well, this is interesting is that between 1908, when Curtis flew the June bug, right up until 1914, so much happened in, in that short space of time uh, in aviation, the development and flying and that the, the plant here at Hammondsport was growing by leaps and bounds. Now, by that time, Glenn had flown airplanes at different international races and local races and was winning, you know, accolades and awards. Uh, so, uh, things were growing quite fast. Now, in 1914, we're, we're, we're moving up to 1914. Um, a newspaper in England offered a large cash uh, reward for the pers- first person who could fly the first transatlantic flight from the United States to England. And uh, Wanamaker, uh, department store owner, um, 
wanted to get involved with that. So he enlisted Curtis to build um, a an aircraft that could do that, win that prize. And as a result, Curtis had developed the America, which uh, was the world, at that point in time, the world's largest uh, twin-engine flying boat. Let me take one step backwards. Uh, before this happened, Curtis was developing a lot of interest in water flight uh, back in the early 1900s. And in 1911, developed the first practical hydro airplane, which uh, he talked the Navy into purchasing. And he uh, developed the Navy's first U.S. Uh, first U.S. Navy air, aircraft. Uh, then he felt that, well, hydro airplanes are nice, but there's got to be a better way. And he decided to try to put uh, wings on a boat. And he developed the first practical flying boat. And as a result, um, the America was developed. Now, in 1914, <clears throat> with the America being developed, Curtis uh, found that the plant here in Hammondsport was, was um, hamstrung, as it were, in the fact that it could no longer grow. Uh, Hammondsport sits down at the end of a lake, nestled in a valley, uh, it's got a lake at one, you know, to the north of it, two steep ridges, uh, hillsides uh, on the east and the west, and a swamp to the south. So there was no place to grow the plant. So Curtis was forced to expand outward in other areas. And he took a look at Buffalo. Buffalo uh, it was very promising. It was a major shipping area. Uh, it had water. It had land. It had a workforce. I mean, it was it had a lot to offer. So at that point in time, Glenn decided that they were going to start building the flying boats in Hammondsport, or excuse me, in Buffalo. And he actually even opened up a small um, uh, flight school in, in Buffalo there to teach people who are buying the flying boats how to fly them. That was one of the, the, the aspects uh, at that point in time. When you bought an aircraft from Curtis, uh, they had an air school that would teach you how to fly it, too because there were a lot of different types and methods of control systems uh, out there. The Wrights had a different control system. There's the depth reducing system um, that if you learn to fly one airplane, generally you couldn't fly another. So if uh, someone who learned to fly a Wright flyer wanted to buy a Curtis plane, they had to learn all over again how to fly the Curtis plane because you know what they learned from flying the Wright flyer was not going to help them whatsoever. So that's how it, uh, the industry started taking a foothold in the um, in Buffalo area. But World War I broke out in 1914 at that point in time. Now, the Curtis Company, um, there were two different companies at that point. It was the Curtis uh, Motor Company and the Curtis Airplane Company. Uh, were the demands from European countries, not only, and not only the United States and Canada, started increasing so fast that Glenn was forced to really start expanding. Hammondsport was now converted to just building uh, engines alone, and Buffalo became the major uh, area for building the aircraft. And there, they had plants all around uh, Buffalo, including uh, the Niagara Street plant, uh, the Churchill Street plant, uh, Elmwood South plant on Elmwood Avenue, um, uh, and so forth. And by uh, roughly by nineteen, by the end of the war, 
he had uh, eight different plants going on in in Buffalo, uh, all simultaneously simultaneously working <laughs> to produce not only aircraft but uh, engines too. Now, engine production was moved there too. Now, the types of airplanes that they were building they they were building flying boats. Uh, such as the uh, F and uh, MF flying boats, which were being used by the Navy and the Army for training purposes. Uh, they were building the now very popular training plane known as the Jenny, uh, the JN4, and those were being built uh, in Hammondsport, excuse me, Buffalo. And along with that, a lot of other different types of flying boats. So flying boats were were probably one of the m- more uh the, the larger uh types of of aircraft building um for example the churchill street plant which o- was opened in 1915 they were um building the jn4 models the twin jn the r2 the r4 uh for both british and us orders the n9 h4 h12 flying boats uh model t r6 r9 <laughs> and the list goes on. They were building a lot of different types of aircraft um, by the end of World War One for for the military, uh, both in flying boats and uh, land aircraft, as it were. They're building these boats, but are any of them actually being used in the war effort? The um, they a lot of them were used um, for around the United States as patrol. The flying boats themselves were. Ter- uh, primarily used as patrol boat uh, to fly up and down the coast looking for, you know, German submarines uh, and German, uh, you know, naval craft. Uh, And an interesting thing is uh, the only American-built and American-designed aircraft to see combat in World War I was a Curtis flying boat uh, when it attacked a uh, German submarine. Uh, but otherwise, they were primarily just training planes. Uh, there were a lot of different countries buy, buying the JN models to train their pilots before they went off uh, fl- flying the fighters in combat. As the fighting plane, fighter planes were, you know, extremely expensive, and you couldn't waste one training someone and have them crack it up. The Jennies were very durable aircraft. They could crack them up, and they could put them back together. Uh, with bailing wire and twine and fly them again if they had to. <laughs> okay, so now we're at the end of World War I. It's 1918. Where does Curtis's career go after the war? Okay, well, at that point in time, as far as aviation goes, Glenn had pretty much burned out. Uh, he was tired. Uh, he was a hands-on man. So he didn't sit back in an office at the top of a building and let everybody else run it. And he had, he would get the greatest minds he could find and the most talented people he could find to help him develop and run uh, the, the company. But he still had to be on the floor. So it wasn't unusual to find Glenn walking around different plants and traveling back and forth between Buffalo, Hammondsport, and Long Island, where they opened up the uh, Curtis uh, Engineering Company, which was the experimental plant for developing new types of aircraft. So he was always back and forth. He had a home in Buffalo, he had a home in Long Island, and then he had the house here in Hammondsport. So he was moving back and forth continuously. But by that time, by the end of the war, Curtis had aged considerably. He was a tired man. 
and uh, he took an interest in Florida and land development. So he left, moved down to Florida, and started land developing. And he was responsible for developing and founding the cities of Hialeah, Opelika, and Miami Springs, Florida. Uh, while he was down there, uh, he started getting involved more into leisure time stuff that he had enjoyed as a young man, archery, hunting, uh, camping. And as a result, he founded the uh, um, company by the name of the Curtis Aero Car Company, developing high-end uh, travel trailers and campers uh, just for the, those needs. Rick, when you and I first planned this interview, you mentioned to me some aspects of Curtis's personality, that he wasn't the most social person. He didn't love schmoozing when he was at a party or in, you know, just business life. Could you get into that? I think it, it shows a little bit about his character, his personality, a little bit more of the human side of him. When Curtis was growing up, because he was, he was the mainstay of the family, for many years, uh, he grew up as a as a young man. He was spending a lot of time working with his sister after she had lost her hearing. He didn't really have all that much time for uh, friends and groups. He was kind of an introvert. He loved his his, his uh, quiet time. He loved being by himself because he was always thinking. He was always working on something whether it was mechanical or an idea. Uh, and as a result, uh, when he got into adulthood, he was the same way. He liked people, but it was on a one-to-one basis. He didn't like large groups. He didn't like socializing. So he um, would oftentimes, and the interesting thing is, is that his wife, Lena, was just the opposite. She just loved to socialize, loved to have parties, and things of that nature. Uh, and during that period of time when they, you know, were always socializing and that, Glenn would make an appearance and then quickly de- disappear. He even had, in his home down in, in Florida, actually had a hidden door and staircase. So he uh, could make an appearance and then disappear quietly. Uh, so he didn't have to schmooze and mingle and, you know, shake hands constantly with people. People always, once, uh, an interesting point too is that he was a very generous man. He, he grew up with, uh, you know, in a, a poverty-like lifestyle, was very frugal, and he was almost embarrassed uh, about being a millionaire because after World War I, because the company grew so large, he was a multimillionaire. So he actually would give a lot of his money away. Uh, he financed uh, organizations. Uh, he pumped a lot of his money into the uh, founding of those three cities down in uh, in Florida. Um, and for exa- a good example would be that uh, he built uh, for, I believe it was Miami Springs, he built a power plant using his own money to, to supply the city and then sold it to Miami Springs for a dollar, you know. Uh, he would give a lot of people here in Hammondsport. He actually, when he was forced to close the plant down in Hammondsport, now, mind you, a lot of people uh, couldn't understand why he was closing the plant down, but in 19, right after World War One, the country became engulfed in a lot of different things. Number one, uh, the army contract, uh, the, the military um canceled all the contracts, which immediately 
took away the livelihood of a lot of plants, especially those here in Hammondsport. Uh, and then they turned around and sold a lot of the aircraft and engines uh, on the civilian market, which even hurt the in, uh, aircraft industry even more because there was no demand now. So plants were being closed. People were being laid off because there was nothing for them to make. There was no need for their products anymore. Um, kind of sounds familiar today, doesn't it? Uh, <laughs> and uh, as a result, because Glenn was forced to do that, he was very protective of Hammondsport. This was his hometown, you know, his home village. Uh, he tried to form new companies. He formed the Cuca uh, uh, Industries and tried to get other companies to come to Hammondsport, occupy the empty plant that was here, and put people back to work. And he did it, uh, some, but on a small scale, scale, not enough to put the, the thousands of people that were laid off back to work. Uh, and as a result, Glenn actually gave people money to pay off their mortgages so they wouldn't lo- lose their homes. He paid fuel bills for people who were, you know, hurting here in Hammondsport. And he also made an offer that anybody who wanted to come down to Florida, he'd get them resettled down there and get them started over again. And a lot of people did take him up on it. So you mentioned Cayuga Lake, and that made me think that at the museum in one of our meeting rooms, we have these large um, um, photographs of pontoon boats, the flying boats, um, early 20th century, and they're landing on a lake. And I believe it's Cayuga Lake. And um, it, to me, it just seems so amazing that early 20th century, you've got um, aviation, you've got early transportation with with automobiles, but the aviation aspect of it, so much of it happened just two hours away um, from Buffalo. And sadly, I went a, a good deal of my life not realizing just how close a proximity we were to that. And just one last question I wanted to ask you. If, if Glenn Curtis were alive today, do you have any idea, what are your thoughts on what he might be doing? Well, it's an interesting thing. When Glenn passed away at the age of 52 in 1930, uh, he was in the process of developing the first drive-through safari park that would have been opened up in Florida. That was one of his dreams. Uh, I think, honestly, he would have developed, he would have glommed on or uh, uh, taken any new um uh, item that was out there and would have run with it like he did with bicycles, motorcycles, flying boats, aviation. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he was still alive today that he probably would have been right there with Elon Musk at uh, the SpaceX. You know, that, that was where Glenn was. A new challenge. He always wanted new challenges that, that he wasn't he wasn't happy to sit back and rest and 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 watch the world go by I'd like to extend a special thank you to Rick Leisenring and the Glenn Curtis Museum for uh, being so generous with their time. As you can see, Rick is a, a highly, highly informative person um, uh, on not just Glenn Curtis, but a variety of topics. He's really a pleasure to speak with. Um, again, so if you've got an opportunity, if you're in the Finger Lakes region, if you're interested in history, if you want to know a little bit more about our region's role in the aviation history, please stop by the Glenn Curtis Museum. Not only they have information about Glenn Curtis, but they also have some history uh, of Hammondsport. And I know that they bring in uh, changing exhibits as well. So please be sure to check them out. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Andrew M. Cuomo and the New York State Legislature. 
Additional support is also provided by M&T Bank and from the generous support of our donors, members, and friends. We thank you all so much for listening and encourage you to help us grow by subscribing and reviewing us and telling your friends and family. The Buffalo History Museum podcast has already been downloaded in 14 different states and four different countries. We'll see you next week with another great story. So until then, take care.